0: Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. We are back in studio today with our newly configured phone system so that we can do a show with live call-in guests. Uh, Big Nick is even here today overseeing this project. Um, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Where we go. Behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, production designers, cinematographers, costume designers, composers, VFX, magicians, sound editors, sound mixers, authors, you name it. We talked to all of them. And, of course, last Monday, no show because it was tryptophan coma. After Thanksgiving. And a weekend of turkey. But we are back in the final countdown. Of 2023. We only have two more shows. After today. And we say goodbye to year 9. Of Behind the Lens. And look forward to the start of year 10. In January 2024. So. Fun show today. Two very different films. We already have our first filmmaker, writer, director, Sean, as I'm choking here, Sean McEwen, uh, to talk about his film, American Outlaws. Later in the show, Lila Schmitz is going to join us to talk about her documentary, A Beautiful Doc, Irish Music, Clare County, Ireland, um, The Job of Songs. So I'm looking forward to both of them. But right now, We've got Sean on the line. Are you there? Hi, guys. Hi Sean. I
1: sure, I sure am. And I love, <laughs> I think we're off to a good start. I, I got you all choked up just thinking about me, so that's good. <laughs> just
0: kidding. Welcome, welcome. I am so glad that Matt and I could make this happen because earlier in the year, when you were on the festival circuit for Santa Barbara uh, Film Festival, the, sh- sure. uh, the show was so booked up, Annie and I could not... We, there wasn't a Monday that we could slot you in. So, oh,
1: bless heart. I'm, I'm so grateful, and I uh, am, am such fans of you guys, so I really appreciate your time, and it's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Oh, and I am so excited to speak with you, Sean. I mean, and it's hard to believe this is your second feature film. Yeah. Uh, your production values, the quality of the artisans, your cinematography, the way you have captured action, it belies just a second directorial effort. Uh, But I do have to say, with you as one of the producers behind Bernie, one of my all-time guilty pleasures. I want you to know that. Oh, my
1: gosh, amazing. That's amazing.
0: A a colleague of mine just uh, saw Bernie for the first time a few weeks ago and posted about it on uh, Instagram. And she was just, she loved it. She couldn't believe she hadn't seen it in all this time. I couldn't believe it. Oh my believe.
1: gosh, I think, I think you bring up, so, well thank you for saying that, I think you bring up such a good point too, because uh, not that always these things land, but you attempt to make films, or be part of films, or support films in some capacity, that um, are those that can also be helped by word of mouth, even over the years. Yeah. Uh, there are also, you know, discoveries, rediscoveries of them, and I think Bernie definitely falls in that category. And, I know, uh, at least of my own films that I've directed and written, uh, I'm trying to fall upward in that same category when I can. So uh, that's super great that that your friend uh, discovered that, because it is a great film with a great cast.
0: Oh, my God, absolutely. Shirley MacLaine is a scream. Uh, Jack Black is just... I think it's one of his best performances, quite honestly. Uh, Yes,
1: for sure, yeah. He's had a a lot of good ones, so that's saying a lot. (laughs) But I agree.
0: But now i got to tell you, you wrote, you directed American Outlaws. This is, this is a difficult story to tackle because it is based on true crime. This, the basic facts are true, and the yeah. Dougherty sim- siblings, um, they're all in various prisons right now.
1: Um, yes, that's, that's correct. Yeah, very true.
0: T- t- tell me, Sean, what gave you the idea to take their story of this sister and two brothers uh, who are trying to escape from southern United States and make their way to Mexico for quote-unquote freedom. Uh, Of course, uh, you know, as history has shown us, uh, they didn't get any kind of freedom.
1: <laughs> but, right no no absolutely they you know look not even a spoiler alert uh i you know this is a, a story for public consumption in the yeah. sense that we you know lived it and followed it through the lens of the media uh that did come to its fiery conclusion and it's out there you know so um, you know so you you're right it's a great question why would why would we want to go and tell this story um, when we kind of know how it already ends and i think that's you know what you know hopefully again as you're striving to tell great stories it comes down to so much more. It's the opportunity to dive in deeper, to, uh, to get something dramatized, to have other artists and artisans that you're involved with uh, in this process and all the departments, including the acting departments and uh, you know, um, art department, uh, sound design, music, et cetera, to all come together and to, to you know, kind of elevate this. Um, and I think you know, in particular, this because it's so character-driven, um, I think it gives the opportunity uh, even though, again, we, we know how it ends to like see, you know, what made these people tick to mm-hmm. explore that, uh, to kind of look at it through that that lens. And um, and that's that's what really compelled me. I was really fortunate uh, to to have been aware of the, the, uh, the story um, again when it kind of came out in the media. You know, this came out over a decade ago. Yeah. And, and like a lot of the news cycles, things. Yeah. Things just kind of happened very fast. And you got a lot of coverage for the number of days that took place over less than a week. Um, and then, you know, and then it's on to the next thing. Um, what was so great about this one and why this story, I think, got really lucky is there was a wonderful article that was written by an award-winning journalist named Kathy Doby mm-hmm. who wrote this for GQ magazine. And um, when I was handed the magazine article, it was written so beautifully and so cinematically to begin with. You just saw so much that could go into uh, imprinting into, a, you know, the a, a potential for a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it started there. And then, the other thing I'll share, too, is you kind of said this um, with regard to the, the real the real siblings, the three siblings, Ryan Lee Grace and Dylan Doherty that this was based on, is that um, I had the opportunity then to go down that rabbit hole that a lot of writers do where you're, you start digging and finding out more. And, uh, and I end up reaching out to the three siblings, the real siblings um, in person, and uh, they're each serving uh, uh, different uh, lengths of time in three separate federal prisons across the country. And I reached out to each of them and uh, I got in touch with them and I guess you could say ingratiated myself to them to uh, kind of garner their trust to discuss the and explore the possibility of telling their story and then I actually went down and met with each of them and so that was a whole adventure in and of itself to go to these um, these you know prison facilities and experience that and be eyeball to eyeball with them and face- to-face and 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 like I said hear their story and uh, and then you know, then that, that really kick-started our whole development process to for me to write the script and, and to, to look at putting this together.
0: You know, not too many filmmakers have faced the challenge that you face with telling this story of American outlaws, and, and that is the logistics of getting into the prisons to speak with these individuals. That's, it's not like you walk up to the door and say, Hi, I want right. to vi- I, I visit them. Uh, not how it works. What kind of hoops did you have to jump through in order to gain access to them in the prisons?
1: Well, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I think from an institutional standpoint and, uh, you, you know, an infrastructural standpoint, I mean, prisons are made for a reason to have, you know, very strict restrictions. And, um, and with that, you know, you have to abide by that stuff. So it just comes with the territory of just trying to, you know, get in touch with someone and to do so, it you know starts with, you know, the old-fashioned letter writing, like really a postcard in the mail, a uh, letter with a stamp on it kind of a thing, and then hope the person gets back to you. <clears throat> and I'll also say, and look, I know everyone that is serving time or is incarcerated has a different situation, some than others, but, um, you know, a lot of people aren't in the best socioeconomic situation or financial situation. The siblings weren't either, so they didn't even really have money to be able to even – by a pencil and paper and write back, you know, from the mm-hmm. the, the prison commissary to do yeah. that. So, you know, uh, you know, so you know, having to be patient with that part of the process to eventually escalating that to where we could actually then get have trust to get on a phone call, and to, to then kind of be voice to voice and have an intro in that manner. So was able to do that, and then it all led to again getting permission from the prison to actually come and visit and get on the um, the visitation list, which is a whole process. So they they know, obviously, who's coming in to see certain people, et cetera. And then going down there and, and yeah, and and the whole game of spending a day in a prison, in a visitation (laughs) setting was like a a movie in itself, to say the (laughs) least.
0: Now, something that you do that I really appreciate here is you keep us in the POV of Dylan, Ryan, and Lee Grace. We are in their shoes, and that's something that when all of this went down over a decade ago, the media was not in their shoes. We had the outside observer perspective, the legal system perspective, but we did not we were not walking in the shoes of the Docrates. And we are with American outlaws. How much of your interviews with each of them did you work in to the script? so that we would be walking in their shoes?
1: Well, I, I think that's a great question. That's kind of the multi-million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, you know, I attempted to, you almost weirdly, and I'm not a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I'm, again, I'm a, a writer, a screenplay writer, a, a, a director, I try to tell stories. Um, but you, you almost, especially when it's a true-life experience, you, you almost take on some journalistic sort of qualities to what you're attempting to do. Um, Again, I'm not saying I did a wonderful job in doing that necessarily, but, you know, you you fall upward and kind of learn as you're going when it comes to a true life story. I think with this, I really went into it kind of being attempting to be as impartial as possible Mm -hmm. um, to not necessarily go into going, you know what? Um, Gosh, as I'm getting to know these kids, yes, they made some mistakes, but you start to, you know, the heartstrings start to get pulled because everybody's got a story to tell Mm -hmm. and a background so then from there, you can start to slant it a certain direction. I really wanted to attempt to do this, to try to give an opportunity, yes, for their part of the story to be heard again from their POV, which it wasn't through, again, that lens of the media and those sound bites. Right. Uh, the sound bites that kind of, you know, you can click on those really sexy kind of sound bites of like, you know, oh, there are a bunch of, and I'm, I'm, I'm semi paraphrasing, but this was kind of pretty accurate. Like, oh, these are these crazy meth out hillbillies who are running wild and robbing banks and shooting at police all these things, and then as you dug into the story, you start to realize there's way more to it, and some of this isn't being necessarily accurately portrayed. And that's where it gets mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, I find a lot of the stories that I personally like to tell and gravitate toward, um, I think a lot of audiences are, have really responded to over the years, um, and, and a million other pieces of content, are those kind of, the, the moral ambiguity of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there's not a, it's not like the good guys are wearing white hats, and the bad guys wearing black hats, it's that in between the gray that's so yep. interesting to explore. So I really wanted to do that with this. I didn't want to portray them to be these, you know, these heroes that we just put on this kind of pedestal and, oh, they were done so wrong by society, so you know, this, this, there's justification on this. I mean, they did things that they shouldn't have done and they deserve uh, to get... You know, the argument can be made that they deserve to get you know, a lot of the comeuppance that they end up getting. But at the same time, one can start to have some sort of empathy of understanding, like, wait, what did motivate this? Right. What were the circumstances or the environment that contributed to, you know, where they felt like they had no other options. And then how, as a society, are we maybe, again, this is just for exploration, it's not to necessarily politicize anything or to hit somebody over the head with a hammer with it, but how are we complicit in, you know, aiding in that in some way? And, and how also can we all, as a collective human experience, um, relate maybe to, what would you do if one of your siblings had paid themselves into a corner and had no options, and they were essentially kind of handed a, a quote-unquote, and I mean this um, figuratively more than literally, like a death sentence. And and uh, and and what would you do? What lengths would you do to protect your family? You know, so some of those things are, you know, and 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 the flaws and the faults and failures in all of that. I think that's interesting because, you know, we all make our own mistakes. And you know, obviously they did this on a very grand scale and paid a very hefty price. I think it also just one more thing that was really fascinating to me was that you know, they didn't end up hurting anybody. And for me, that was also interesting to explore. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't justify anything because we have to also talk in reality that they could have. Yeah. But the fact that they 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 didn't, um, that they did, they were kind of, you know, kind of pulled by this sort of, like, as, as askew as it was, this this kind of code of ethics, this Southern code of ethics, like there's right and there's wrong. And, yep. you know, this kind of, you know, robbing from the rich to give to the poor kind of, Sensibility about it all, and I think that was that harkens to something that's a very uh, uh, kind of embedded in the tapestry of the American experience. Again, for better or for worse, and I thought that was you know as a sort of a modern day kind of you know Western story, a neo-Western kind of story. I thought that was really fascinating and, and compelling to 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 investigate.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely is. I mean, I was fascinated watching this story play out through the entire film. And a big part of selling this story and getting and having any kind of empathy, for the audience to have empathy, or maybe not empathy, but at least understand their reasoning, the siblings' reasoning for what they were doing, is your casting. Emery Cohen, I mean, you've got an amazing cast here. Emery Cohen is fabulous, India Isley, Sam Strike, and then as our two agents, Corey Hardrick and... Treat Williams, his final film, Mm -hmm. his final film appearance. You know, talk to me about putting this cast together because these roles are so specific. Now, granted, Treat Williams coming into a role like FBI agent Donovan, this is something we've seen him do in the past over his lengthy career. But the emotional lengths that Emory, India, and Sam had to go to to embody Dylan, Lee, Grace, and Ryan. That could not have been easy with a story like this. Yeah,
1: I think you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. I think first and foremost, if you can get so lucky as a filmmaker, is to find and associate and identify really talented artists to work with that bring the work to a whole other level. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that if I'm good at nothing... Um, the only thing that I might be okay at is surrounding myself with people that are a lot better and more talented than I am, and I'll take credit for all their work, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but really, all joking aside, I mean it is that. And I, and I, I knew in writing this, and and when people get hopefully the chance to see the film and see the wonderful work done by these these incredible young actors, um, that we were going to need some some real powerhouses in those categories, and they all did deliver, because it took a lot from them. and We had to believe so many things with them. We had to believe that they truly were a family. We had to see the honesty and the portrayal of these characters from a day-to-day standpoint, all the way through to these extreme circumstances, and when they were on the run. And then when they start to reveal their backstories and how this emotionally impacted them, and, and there's a lot of complexity to that. I mean, again, the human experience is complex. So, you know, you needed actors that could really dig deep and go there, weren't afraid to go there. And I, where I, the last thing I'll say about this, I have to, I feel so grateful that they entrusted me with their own craft that we could mm-hmm. again go in these spaces and explore this and really bring out something special because I will say this, if nothing else, and this is something that stand by with the film, these, these actors did such a wonderful job that this performance just stand out so much. And the movie deserves to be seen for that and that alone, in my humble opinion. I mean, these, these, I call, I call them kids, but these, these three main actors were just outstanding and one, one after the other. And they have, have already done such great things, but have such incredible careers ahead of them. and, Um, man did I get fortunate.
0: You really did. You really did, Sean. Now, I'm curious for you, because you wrote and directed this, as you were writing this, were you also envisioning how you were going to execute this visually on screen in terms of your cinematography? Were you storyboarding, um, drawing little stick figures? How was this process like for you as writer-director with a story like this?
1: Yeah, well, I was really fortunate to work with the director of photography that I worked with on my first film, Justin Henning. Justin is a god. At,
0: Justin he's is really, a
1: He's,
0: he's got he's, your lucky he's, day he's out. He's the best. Yeah. Uh,
1: yes, I mean, l- listen, he is just incredible and such a good storyteller through the, the visual medium of, very much. you know, uh, cinematography. Yeah, I mean, man, he can paint a picture like you wouldn't believe. And um, so, you know, we had a really distinct plan, you know, going in place um, from a vision standpoint, if you will, but it also does have to mesh. And I'll just let's just you know call it warts and all the fact that like we knew we were making an indie film, not a huge budget film, but we we're going to be competing with um, big films. Uh, you know, I, I had a mentor that once told me, like Look, it's the same 10, 11, 12, 15 dollars being spent on uh, an avatar level film as on your little indie film. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you know, so yeah. you have to still bring the goods and entertain the people and tell great stories. And stuff so you know i think going into it we knew we were going to have to be very clever about how we did especially because there's these action elements in it yeah um you know so that that plan was in place but yeah so we had everything had to be very prepared very mapped out um and how that really meshed in uh not just from articulating the execution of it in a logistical sense but also like you know this vision we we felt it really did hearken to those stories of yesteryear of those like great 70s films like, again, I'm making high-falutin comparisons, but like <laughs> Badlands and, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and these kind of things where it was very, um you know, that kind of gritty filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And we tried to, you know, kind of give an homage to that in a sense as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what you also do, and this is one thing that Justin does so well as a cinematographer, is his framing. And, you know, utilizing that... Um, it, in terms of making things claustrophobic as the world is closing in or opening it out and dutching. There's some very nice, subtle dutching that's going on in American Outlaws. And that, yeah. that adds so much to our perception of who these characters are, who these three siblings are. You know, most of what we see from Treat and Corey as, as our FBI agents, that's very straightforward in terms of the framing. And uh, we're looking at things spot on. I think a lot of it looked like it was on sticks or you were doing uh, some steady cam. But yeah. you really get some interesting subtext, metaphoric subtext, with those visuals when it comes to the three, the three siblings. And I I, yeah, I think we, I just love
1: yeah. that. Yeah, you're, um, and thank you for picking up on that. And it's those kind of things that are subtle and, you know, we can talk about for 100 hours um, as we're going into it, execute and, again, try to create something. But you, you never know if people will pick up on it. in the way, it's almost kind of neat if they don't, but hopefully it just leaves them with a feeling. Um, yeah, we did. We tried to do that. We felt like some of the, um, the camera angles in particular without, like, trying to necessarily show off as much as just to create this kind of atmosphere you know, the characters feeling kind of off, off balance a bit, mm-hmm. you know, losing their footing, losing their legs as they were, you know, kind of making decision after decision, bad decision after bad decision. Yeah. And the wheels beginning to fall off their experience. Um, you know, the road to hell was paved with good intentions and it was for them. And then it just all went, went, you know, down the, down the tubes there. Um, so I think we try to, again, communicate that also through the visual and using the camera as a conduit for that part of storytelling. Um, same thing with feeling uh, there's, a sense of almost feeling closed in uh, yes. the deeper that they went and down the river sticks into the, you know, mouth of Haiti. We felt like, you know, we wanted to kind of feel that car. They, um, a lot of the movie takes place on um, this kind of a road trip movie, I guess. Mm-hmm, you say, very much so. In this car. Yeah. So we've got this pod that's kind of, again, heading down this river, quote unquote, the Congolese River, to make a Joseph Conrad kind of, you know, analogy <laughs> here. But in doing, yeah, in doing so, um, we wanted the audience to feel like they were the the fourth sibling, if you will, in the car with them. And um, and I think that started to add to the paranoia and the claustrophobia of, you know, like when you're on the run and you feel like for the first time in your life you're in control of everything, and all of a sudden you start to realize you're in control of nothing. And um, I think that became a very important part of, you know, what, what we set out to accomplish.
0: Well, you definitely succeeded. Now, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Pending, uh, pending our phone system get, getting restored to its full glory at some point. Uh, <laughs> but I've got, <laughs> I've got one last question for sure, you, no, um, because then we have to clear the line so that our next guest can call in. Uh, Absolutely. But I'm curious, what did you learn about yourself, Sean, as a filmmaker and storyteller in making American Outlaws that you can now take forward into your future,
1: Well, all right. Well, I'll I'll do this super quick, but this is a great question. Um, I think that for me personally, and I always say this again, I'm just going to kind of expose it all here in saying this. I think when you attempt to, you know, tell stories and create and be an artist, if you will, is, you know, you want people to relate or to understand and you want, you have a story to tell you want to communicate and to connect. And I think sometimes one might question, I can say this for myself. I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but like, okay, well, what, what makes me different? What, what, makes, what gives me my own voice? I mean, we see these great filmmakers that we all look up to. I know I do, like Steven Soderbergh or Quentin Tarantino or Darren Aronofsky. They have so their own distinct thing. When you see it, even if it's a different type of story they're telling, you know it's that filmmaker. I, and I, okay. At some point, I, and I, you know, look, maybe I'm, you know, slow to the punch on this, but I stopped and I thought, you know, man, I've, I've gotten two films under my belt. What is my thing? And I think what I learned from, from this film, American Outlaws in particular, is that, you know, as much as from a technical standpoint, there's things that I enjoy and I love to play with to help enhance and tell the story. But I love these character-driven stories, but about these people that are, you know, look, at the beginning, you may not even know if you like like them. You, they may even have certain traits that kind of fall into this sort of um, the fringe, you know, the criminal, the et cetera. Mm-hmm. But like getting to understand them, not to forget, Give them or to give them a free pass or any of that but try to understand like we're all flawed we all have this thing and this insatiable need to 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 be open to uh understanding and maybe even caring about those that are hard to care about you know and that i think in a way is kind of something that you know really is interesting to me and i want to continue with my future work and i i learned about myself with this particular film
0: Well, Sean, job well done. I can't wait to see what you bring me next. And everybody can see American Outlaws now. It is out. It's streaming. It's on VOD. And everybody should see it. It's a really well done film. And uh, you have to come back on the show again.
1: I look forward to it. You've been so amazing. And please enjoy the rest of your day. And we really appreciate the support. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, Sean. Bye-bye. Okay, Okay, that, that, that abrupt cutoff, Sean, if you're out there listening, Matt, if you're listening, that was Big Boss Nick who hit the button to cut it, the call off a little too soon. So, more joys of live broadcasting. So, our next guest should be calling us momentarily here, Lila Schmitz, uh, writer, director, and editor of the job of songs. This is a beautiful, beautiful film uh that is shot in Ireland. It is shot in Doolin, in the County Clare. Um and it is just it's interesting, it's heartwarming, it's enlightening and it delves into the importance of the music in this little town in this little town of Doolin. Um And the history of Irish music and how it's really infused in the DNA of the people that live there. And we meet a lot of them and we hear the history of a lot of the music. And some of the old timers and people that came before who started these pubs with music, with flutes and fiddles which is what everybody thinks of with Irish music, you know, flutes and fiddles. So just absolutely stunning, absolutely stunning uh, work that Lila has brought us. And now, oh, oh, Lila's here. Oh, Lila, you're you're live on air. Hi. uh-oh, uh- oh, okay, somehow, apparently she hung up or got disconnected, hung up, okay, so Nick is gonna is going to get Lila back on the line for us. This is one of the fallacies with this temporary phone system. uh I apologize for that. But there's kind of nothing we, we can do to get around it right now. So, all right, Nick is trying. Lila, are you there? I am, hello. Hi, Lila. Welcome to Behind the Lens. How are you? Thanks so much. Um,
2: I'm great. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I am thrilled to have you to talk about the job of songs. Talk about a job... You did a great job <laughs> with this documentary, let me tell you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a lot of effort. <laughs> uh, that's obvious. This involved how many trips to Ireland? You know, this was one trip. We filmed it all in one go. Wow. You know, I, I yeah. was telling the listeners, giving them the background of this all stems from, it's all about celebration of the Irish music the history, the folklore, and over the centuries and how it is now where it is in today's world in the 21st century. And this is such a heartwarming meeting these people because we really get to meet these people up close and personal who live in this wonderful little town of Doolin and... I'm curious, talk to me, talk us through your process, because wanting to do a documentary about Irish music in this one particular area um, is not really what what you'd be talking about at the breakfast table, I don't think.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so I um, traveled to Ireland with family when I was a teenager, and I stepped into a pub, and there was this music session going on, um, which is sort of what the film centers around, and Mm -hmm. when I first stepped into a session, I was just really blown away by the feeling of it, Uh, and there are these people sitting next to each other who play the same tunes, share this language of the music, and there are people sitting next to each other who've known each other for 40 years, and somebody walks in who they've just met, and they share this language, Um, and just as an audience member, as a patron sitting at the bar, it was so enthralling. And the feeling of it stuck with me. Um, So years later, I decided to make a documentary about it. And really what you're describing with sort of um, just meeting these people and going into the town that like the film is, is really what we were doing when we were there. We went in and we sort of followed this natural trajectory of Exploring the place, exploring the music, our b and b hosts uh, suggested a session that became sort of the central um, session of the film that opens and closes the the film, and uh, they introduced us to one person who said, "Oh, you know what you should talk to this other person and um, it just it just sort of naturally went as it went
0: yeah, this very much um. I could tell as you know we're bouncing from person to person it's you know going into like your local bar here in the states where you know everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody but if you don't know everybody it doesn't take long before you do
2: yes and absolutely. It's, it's very connected
0: now you know was it difficult now it's one thing for people to sit and talk and uh, regale stories and history to you it's something else to do it on camera was yeah. was that a problem
2: you know um it is scary to come in with a camera and it's scary for the people on the other side of it. We were very gentle about the whole process. We were sort of had a very small crew camera set up. And at first we just took the camera into the pubs and didn't shoot anything. We didn't film people. We were just, you know, we maybe tested the lighting, but we were just there sort of, familiarizing them with us and the other way around and uh, just did a lot to sort of try to make sure that we were not uh, being exploitative or invasive. Um, And that was something that they talked about, I think they're very used to tourists coming in and filming and there's been a lot of that, but that was one of the reasons that I think we were able to get people to open up was just being very gentle about it and curious and um, maybe not bossy and just uh, sort of young women coming in very um, interested in what they had to say. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and then as you're accumulating all of the, and of course I'm sure it helped that everybody's in there downing a few pints, so it kind of loosens mm-hmm. them up anyway uh, <laughs> to talk with you. Yeah. But at what point did you start finding your through line? Because we have lots of interviews here, but they're not your, what people would consider a standard sit-down interview for a documentary. Except maybe with Christy Barry, the owner of the Doolin Music House. Um, I think he's probably the closest yeah. thing to a, a sit-down interview similarly maybe katie Thesby, but what how did you start with a through line as you're talking to all these people because you're you're hearing from so many different people different age groups demographics uh, where do you even start because you edited this also
2: yeah, yeah, it's it's a great question, and um, when we found the throughline, I I would say years after um, <laughs> the making of it, but we started to discover it while we were there, um, and you know, I think as a as an early on first time feature filmmaker, I went in with a series of questions written down, and I think what really helped was. I went in and, you know, asked the first question, uh, what's your name and how long have you been playing music? Something like that. And then from there, I just sort of never looked back at the questions and I um, really just kind of pulled out of them what they were already speaking about and Mm -hmm. the things that interested me as a human being more so than as a filmmaker maybe. And I think... Like, I look for the emotional part of it more so than the uh, specific information. Like, I think the film does get into some of the history. Christy Berry, like you mentioned, uh, talks about the history probably Mm -hmm. more than anyone. Yes. Um, But, and, and everybody touched on it, but I think that it's more what struck me was, like, what is the feeling of a session that was sort of my guiding light what How do you describe this indescribable feeling? How do you capture it and um so, I would say that the interviews themselves informed as we were going, so Luca Bloom was one of our first interviewers, and I think of him as sort of our philosopher he mm-hmm. He talks a lot about these big ideas and and um really brings home this sort of uh beautiful insight that is not something that I would have necessarily gone looking for in an interview if I hadn't known to just trust him to go and talk about whatever it was he wanted. And he came in, you know, he showed up to the pub and sat down with us and he was running late and very embarrassed and ended up sitting down with us for three hours, and we had this just wonderful tea and conversation. And I, you know, we were nervous because it was one of our first interviews, and he's sort of a big deal. And it was just this beautiful thing where we got to know each other and connected, and um, to the point where he took us to breakfast the next week Aww. and he took us to the burn, which is this beautiful. Um, natural landscape and so it was very much just trying to connect with the human beings and then editing and editing and editing and revising and trying to tell a story with what we had Um, which you know the limitations can be a gift sometimes and I think eventually they worked but it was very challenging
0: something that you do with this and as we're progressing and we hear the history the history of the music the history of the of the region of this specific area Um, And I love the archival photos of what the area looked like, um, you know, over 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And, you know, you infuse us with this. But you bring us into the present when we get into thoughts on immigration and music and also the idea of tourists coming into the into the region. But then, but we also move into the area of depression and loneliness, and how Mm -hmm. the music, when you're gathering in the pub, that kind of takes it away with this lively, the lively Irish lilt. But then there are also some very deep, sad Irish songs, Uh, lamentations almost. Uh, that speak to the depression and the loneliness of so many people. So I, it's, I found that really striking that you take us through and we have people talking about that, such as Katie uh, talks about her recovery, you know, an alcoholic and uh, recovered from that. We hear about people that have committed suicide jumping off the cliffs of Moore. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's all tied to music. Music brings you out of a funk, brings you out of depression, or it lets you wallow in it long enough. Then you can come out of it. It's really fascinating insight into the mindsets Mm. of of the people of Doolin.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think... I mean, I also think it's about coming together with other people right Mm -hmm. like I think the music is really special because you don't have to feel the pressure to you know have some revelatory conversation with someone to pull you out of something you can just sort of sit and you can sit silently all night and have a wonderful time you can also chat and like but regardless, you're in a room full of people who are all there to just sort of spend time and and be in that place. And I think that that is um, just fascinating. And, uh, it, yeah, I think all these disparate pieces really come together around it. And, and with it being an ensemble film, it felt very much like, well, if we have something to speak about, about tourism and about depression and all of this does come from the same place, and these musicians who create this community and so I think tying that together was really um, interesting to me, and it's not like necessarily the easiest way to write um, a documentary or the <laughs> the most classic way to do it, but um I think that ultimately it has come together to seem like a unified story, which was the goal, you know? Um, So, yeah.
0: And, but it's the, the way that it progresses and how we get to those points um, in the documentary. I think you did that beautifully in your storytelling, how we, we go along and we're learning and we're learning and we're seeing, we're hearing and, you've got it paced well before you introduce those kind of issues of emigration or loneliness and depression. Uh, We have met these people. We see the ups, but wherever there's an up, you know, there's going to be a down. So you pace that (laughs) really well in your introduction and exploration of that. And that could not have been easy to find that, that delicate balance in that pace. Thank
2: you. Yeah, I it, it was not. But, you know, I um, I love editing for a similar reason as I love this story, which is it's all about the feeling and it's you can get so specific with it in trying to communicate. Um, and I think, like, having uh, Annika kongrevstad who is the director of photography and a producer on the film as well, she helped me edit it and we wrote it together and just like having a teammate who i trust implicitly to be like does this make any sense and she's like absolutely not and it's like great okay <laughs> we'll keep going and um i think that 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 is uh just the the best thing to have um on top of you know an, an obsessive um commitment to making it work
0: <laughs> well and and i love that you include Nobody wants to see Ireland without seeing rolling hills of green, cliffs, ocean. We want to see those panoramic vistas of Ireland. All those National Geographic pictures come to life. And you give us that. And I love how you intersperse the topography and the panoramas um, throughout the documentary. Did you ever find yourself with an embarrassment of riches as to, "Oh, this looks so pretty, I want to include it, but I can't um,
2: <laughs> yeah, i mean we I think there was a little bit of that, but we actually went in planning to make a short documentary, and so <laughs> didn't have a very long time uh there and um because we ha we still ended up getting quite a bit of footage but we could have used you know twice as much um I'm sure um but because of that we really just combed through for what was beautiful and I think like Annika's such a good uh photographer and so using her just like these like beautiful things that she captured a- accompanied by a couple shots that I got that were okay and um you know <laughs> trying to comb through and uh, make every frame look really uh, in line with what we were trying to communicate with the documentary. I think that was high priority, and and to the to the point of the beautiful landscape. I think that was one of the few things that I went in really knowing that was important was this contrast between the green and blues of the outside world. This like very sparse rolling. Plains and the ocean right there compared to these like little orange warm pubs. And so that like visual contrast is so representative of what it really is and um, just beautiful that I think that that is something that we did um, intend to Mm -hmm. capture and and I think it really helps um, to communicate um, the feeling.
0: Well, the shots of the Cliffs of Moher looking out into the ocean uh, it's just breathtaking, breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Google needs to get those shots and include it or <laughs> HP or whoever. You know, when they're rotating on my TV or my computer, changing the, the image every time I log in, I want I want to see something like that on there. Um, not some weird, idea. not some weird idea. wheat field somewhere um, that yeah. is calming and beautiful. And similarly, what I also love that you do, um, many people, you know, at least in my generation, and we learned about things, you know, foreign countries, and not just from a geopolitical standpoint, but from, you know, it's like Ireland. Not only do you have green fields, but why are there green fields? Or uh, because you have... Guernsey dairy cows there. And we get to see the dairy cows walking along. And beautiful. The, the red Irish horses. So all mm-hmm. of these little things you may have buried in the back of your mind. They're touchstones we've all seen at some point in our lives. And right. you incorporate those. So we're not just looking at, a green, at green hills, rolling hills. But we're seeing a horse galloping you know galloping trotting happily the horse looked happy i gotta tell you
2: (laughs) yeah they have a lot of wild horses there i don't know if we included them in the um uh film i'm trying to think but they they have a lot of wild ponies and they're just absolutely stunning it's it's amazing yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i like i like seeing the dairy cows I like seeing the cows. Yes, and the way they're lumbering along, you know, they're a dirty white, and you've got the sky, and they're up on the cliff, and they're walking, so you've got the sky, and you know that you know the ocean is out there, just magical almost to look at the at the images, and then to hear the music behind it. just spectacular yeah it's
2: it is really where it came from it's it um it it feels so odd to to just logically place you know the cows and the music but I think like because it all comes from this place it it really um it, it ends up making a lot of sense and to your point of having a riches of photography I think what we what we would have liked to have included more was the cow footage honestly we have so much, and we would just walk through the countryside and just shoot the animals before we sort of had people that we knew and were when we were trying to gain trust by just being there. we were like, "Well, the horses and cows are okay, <laughs> they don't mind us um so we do have tons of that, and I think it really just is the feeling of the place and and the livestock and that's a lot how a lot of people um make a living and live their lives and then come into the pubs and, um, sharing the music in the evenings. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, I, I thought that was perfect. I thought it was perfect. Now, I'm curious from a producing standpoint, um, did you have to worry at all about licensing rights for this music and these performances?
2: Um, yes, we, some of it is in the public domain. Uh, which helped us a lot and made it possible to make the film, honestly. Um, But we did, um, a lot of the music is licensed from the musicians in the film themselves, Mm -hmm. and they've been so kind and generous with us in sharing their stories and sharing their music. Um, And then there were a few things that we did have to track down, and, you know, the headache of music licensing is uh, just a big one, um, but I think mostly we got very lucky to have these wonderful musicians share um, their their tunes and songs with us, and then a lot of uh, public domain um, helped us quite a bit. Mm-hmm.
0: Now I know since it hasn't been too long ago, Katie, who had hoped to get a CD out there of her music, her CD is yeah. out there. It's it's now it out is. there. Yep um
2: and yes and it was really well received um the the big you know the the equivalent of pbs in ireland was playing it a lot and um just really had her up on the charts when it came out and it was really special and i think she's actually um she just ran a well, a friend of hers just ran a kickstarter for her to uh hopefully be recording another one so um i'm, I'm very excited for her I, I wow that, that goes well,
0: yeah that's something and all she wanted to do as we see in the documentary is she just I just want to have one just one cd out there as yeah. a legacy for my daughter yeah and she made it <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. she's now she's gonna work on
2: her second that's fantastic yeah now and she got her the other day she got her daughter on stage <laughs> with her performing um her, I don't think her daughter is you know as much of a musician as she is but um, it seems like she's a great singer, and they went to a festival together, and, and her daughter Aww. joined them in the performance. And uh, it's just, it's so cool.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, I love yeah. the intimacy that we get with this documentary, with the job of songs, uh, Lila. It's very intimate, especially when we're in living rooms. When we're in living rooms, and you've yeah. got Christy McNamara there on his little concertina. Um, <laughs> And you know his his daughter or granddaughter playing on a flute, just absolutely yeah, his, encha- niece. his yeah. niece enchanting, really charming. But yeah. it's that intimacy that you capture, even in the pub with when you're when people are talking or playing. When we've got all the guys sitting in the corner uh, around a table. And we, yeah. we have a small, you know, the drum and we've got the flutes and we've got fiddles galore. And there's just an intimacy and camaraderie of warmth that really comes out in the documentary. And that is one of the most impressive aspects of it.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's something that's so important to me in, in documentary is having this sort of magic ability to um, drop into spaces and, uh, you know, trying to be as respectful as possible, but, you know, getting to witness and be sort of a uh, spy on the inside in this really lovely way. I find it just absolutely fascinating and um, the the people are endlessly interesting. And so I think that... Yeah. Um, makes it makes it really um, you know come alive on screen, especially with with having a director of photography who can capture that intimacy mm-hmm. in the same level of um, you know just this this very uh, felt closeness i think um, that is so important
0: and it wasn't like she was uh compacting the framing and bringing it in. this is just how closely knit. Physically and emotionally, these people are. This wasn't staged. It wasn't set up. This is their natural habitat. And it's really wonderful to see that. You know, I'm curious, Lila, how long was this process from beginning to end?
2: Um, A great question. We started five and a half years ago. um, And we uh, filmed in 2018. We... uh, released a version at our world premiere in november of 2021 so um since then it's you know there's been a little bit of change to the film but it's mostly been um just trying to get it out there and now it is um in the u.s available which mm-hmm. is just that's been a dream and so it's very exciting and it's, it's been out in the uk and ireland for a, for a few months as well which is just really wonderful
0: but this is where can everybody find the job of songs? It's streaming on all the usual suspects, I think.
2: Exactly, yep. You know, Apple TV, Amazon, Voodoo, YouTube, all, all of those ones, um, digital platforms galore.
0: <laughs> so now, what's next for you after the job of songs? Will you continue with feature documentaries? Um, move into narratives. What's next for Lila?
2: You know, um, it's all up in the air at this moment. I um, joined a company called Dropout TV, and I'm working in the unscripted comedy space, which is really fun, and they're lovely. Um, And so that's a nice, steady um, gig to have. I'm definitely interested in... Continuing um, documentaries like this, as long as they're sort of in a similar language of intimacy. I've made some scripted short films, and um, so it's. I'm I'm curious in all the storytelling. It's more about the story than the medium for me, I think.
0: Because you were also doing the editing on this one, do you have a favorite aspect of the filmmaking process? Be it writing, Mm. directing, editing... Or for you, do they all just go hand writing. in hand?
2: I mean, I I love to direct. That's that's definitely my bread and butter. Um, but for for editing specifically, like the, I like to edit documentary um, because of the way that you're sort of trying to take real human words and. <laughs> not change them so that they don't change them so that they make more sense as opposed to less sense than what they and communicating what they'd like to say clearly and writing the story like that is so much fun and it's it like I said it's such a challenge but being able to take dialogue and um, write it after the fact, I think is something that uh, I much prefer to scripted writing because you're using just these really interesting things that people have said to try to communicate a story and uh, get other people to want to listen. So that part's really fun.
0: Well, this is a documentary everybody will enjoy. Um, You feel happy the minute the documentary opens, the minute you hear the music. It makes you feel happy. Hmm. It keeps you interested. And uh, I, I just found it, fa- really, it's, it's a character study about a people is what it comes down to. Um, yeah. Just job so well done, Lila. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really
2: appreciate it. Oh,
0: thank you. And I hope you'll come back on the show in the future with your next project, whatever that may Absolutely. be.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> That sounds great.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Lila.
2: Bye-bye. Thanks, bye-bye.
0: And that was Lila Schmitz, writer, director, editor of The Job of Songs. It really is a lovely documentary. So that is all the time that we have today. I think next week we're going to still be in the funky phone mode. I'm not sure. But uh, it wasn't too terrible. Uh, today, just a couple little hiccups there, but, uh, yeah, Pam and I like it much better when people can call in early and she can put them on hold. So <laughs> we got to work on this. We got, we, Nick's got to work on this for us, uh, with the phone company. So, uh, very quickly, if you're looking at the Facebook lot li- the adrenaline com Facebook live feed, uh, you will see. Tablescape, again, what a great Christmas gift for young and old classic film fans. Eddie Muller, the czar of noir, his new kid noir book. Kitty Farrell in the case of the marshmallow monkey. It's so much. It's so adorable. It's wonderful. And, of course, if you're in the Los Angeles area and you want some really, really, really good fresh jerky, Don't forget about LTC, all-natural beef jerky. And the only place you can get it is at Mom's Bar in Santa Monica. So, and uh, if you're setting up any holiday parties, don't forget about the Backstage Bar in Culver City. It's a perfect venue for parties. Just ask everybody at Sony. They had their pre-Sony holiday party there Friday and their post-Sony holiday party there. Um, it was, there are no words. It was loud, it was rowdy, and everybody was having a good time. I can say that. But, there you go. That is all the time we have today. Next week, we've got two more wonderful guests. We're going to be talking about another fire documentary. We've had a lot of fire documentaries this year. And, of course, then another film, new film that's, that's coming out, Cheryl. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.